Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Matthew Steubenberg. Matthew is the Associate Director of Legal Technology at Harvard Law School's Access to Justice Lab and President of MD Legal Apps. Early on in his career, Matthew recognized the power of pairing technology with public service, and he committed himself to exploring that potential. Shortly after graduating from Maryland Law School, Matthew created a number of technology applications that increased access to justice for thousands of Marylanders and helped many thousands more navigate the Maryland court system and public court records, surfacing data that has been used to defend clients and shape reform measures. Listen in to learn more about Matthew's path and learn why he is a firm believer that lawyers should learn to code. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, I appreciate the time. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So you are with the Access to Justice Lab at Harvard. You're the Associate Director of Legal Technology. Let's start by maybe you could spend a few minutes telling our listeners what the A to J Lab is and what it does. Yeah, so we're based out of Harvard Law School. And what we do is we run randomized controlled trials on various interventions in the legal space related to access to justice. And this covers kind of a wide range of potential things. But some of the things we focused on in the past are testing what types of notifications are best to get defendants to show up to their debt collection hearing or to their criminal case. We've tested things like bail risk assessment algorithms. We've tested whether limited representation is better than full representation. And almost everything the lab does is a randomized controlled trial, which is really unique in the space. Tell us what that means for for those listeners that may not be uh, junkies in this area. Yeah, so it's commonly heard in the kind of medical field. Uh, So when they release a new medication, they always do a randomized controlled trial. And what that means is, There's usually a group called the control group that receives a placebo, and then there's a group that receives the actual medicine or the treatment in this case. And that's the best way to test whether or not the medicine that is actually having the effect that is kind of prescribed or hoped to be the outcome for that medicine. And so in the legal context, if we're interested in testing whether full representation is better than limited representation, if we had 100 clients, we would give half of them full representation, and then we'd give half limited representation, and we would see how the outcomes differed. How do you account for the variables in the individual cases? Your medicine example is a good one because there are always underlying health conditions. I presume it deals with the size of the sample pool? Yep, exactly right. The best way to kind of make sure the outliers don't control a study is just to have large enough sample sizes. And usually that's dependent on how big of an effect size you're looking for. You know, if you think your intervention is only going to move the needle 0.5% better outcomes, you need to have a much larger sample size than if you think it's going to move the needle by 20%. So what do you do with the information once you gather it and draw your conclusions? How do you implement it? So the A to J Lab itself doesn't take clients. We're not a law firm. We usually work with various legal services partners. And so think of kind of legal aid groups or court systems. And what we do is once we've analyzed the data, we'll create reports about it and we'll publish the reports. And our hope is that other groups thinking about implementing it or who already have similar programs will read those reports and kind of extract the information from it and then hopefully use that to kind of implement new programs or change programs they already have. 
So you're the Associate Director of Legal Technology. Tell us what that involves. What do you do? Yeah, so it's a, it's a unique position. A lot of the studies we do have various tech components. So some are just tech heavy, like if we're studying an algorithm or something. But other ones, even if they're not considered kind of tech heavy on the front end, they have a lot of tech components required to actually conduct the study. And so maybe it's a website where we collect the information for a defendant or a client, or maybe we need to scrape a website to get the information in order to determine what the outcome is, whether the treatment was effective or not. And so my role is I'm also a software developer is I will build lots of the underlying technology to help get the study all the way to the finish line. And so there's kind of an enormous number of these tiny little programs needed to randomize or collect data that need to get built. So you're building on your prior experience of being a developer and a coder, particularly in Maryland, where you came out of law school and one of the first things you did was begin to build apps dealing with figuring out how to get to courtrooms, how to expunge records. What sort of set you off down this path? Because if I recall correctly, you don't have a computer science degree, right? Correct. Yeah. And I, I try to point that out all the time where, you know, I don't have a computer science degree. I was a political science undergrad and I always liked computers, but it's not like I built programs in my spare time through undergrad and law school. I did take a little bit of coding in high school, so I had a little bit of a leg up. But after I graduated law school, I passed the bar and I had some time off to kind of figure out what to do with this newfangled law degree. Legal market was very tough then. This was back in 2013. And so I figured I could lean back on some of my computer knowledge. And I I said, I bet I can build a mobile app to help boost my resume, you know, kind of have a talking point that might set me apart. And so I dusted off this book on how to build Android apps and I started building it and I completely fell in love with the process. And I kind of had the epiphany of I can help far more people building apps and using technology than I can helping one person at a time. And I've kind of doubled down on legal tech ever since. What was your first app? Yeah. So the first app was something called the Not Guilty app, which is based on my experience as an intern for the public defender's office where in Baltimore City, there's the Baltimore City Courthouse is actually in two buildings. There's lots of judges, lots of chambers. It's tough to keep it all straight when you have to run motions back and forth and fax judges different things. And so the app allowed for kind of an easy directory of all the judges in Baltimore City. And it was kind of meant for attorneys and interns who constantly have to run around the courthouse, but might not, you know, haven't worked there for 10 years and don't know all the ins and outs. And I gather that it was fairly well received. Well, so I built the Android app first and I quickly realized every lawyer except for me has an iPhone. (laughs) And so so I had to go back and build an iPhone version, which is a whole different experience altogether. And yeah, initially people really liked it. There was a lot of need, apparently, even with attorneys who had been in the courts for a while on, you know, phone numbers change, judges change their, you know, what their docket is changes. And so it's hard for anybody to keep track of all that information. Yeah, it brings back my own memories of of litigating and dealing with state court in Cook County and trying to figure out where the judge was holding court that particular day. Yeah, it could be it could be very tricky. So your next app dealt with expungements of records. Right. And this one really took off in a way that I never thought possible. So I built a, a program with a friend to help automate the expungement process in Maryland. And luckily in Maryland, we kind of had a perfect storm, so to speak, where the expungement process itself was very objective. There wasn't a whole lot of areas of kind of judicial discretion. It was either eligible or not. 
the data needed to determine eligibility was all available online from the court's website. And just as the website was finished, the law changed in Maryland to allow a lot more records to be eligible for expungement. And so all of a sudden, a lot of people needed a more efficient way to process these thousands and thousands. And to date, we've printed more than 110,000 expungement petitions through the website. That's amazing. Were these uh, apps out there for free for people or did you monetize them? Yeah. So uh, MD expungement is currently free. I dabbled initially with a way to try to monetize it not really to make any money, just to like break even. And it's it's a very difficult thing to do when trying to help the access to justice space and keep technology funded and maintained. There's not kind of a clear avenue or clear path. And at the time I was brand new in the legal field. I didn't know any how to get funds or anything like that. So ultimately I just made it free and I just personally maintain it and pay the AWS cost to keep it going. So talk to us a little bit about the use of technology in the A to J space. There's clearly an opportunity here to use technology to create services and results for people like the expungement app. Where do you see technology going? What are the challenges to utilizing technology for development for these services? Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential that technology can really help because, of course, access to justice issues usually deal with a lot of clients that need help, right? So think evictions, expungement. There's more people that need help than there are attorneys to help them. And so technology is really the only way to be able to do that. One of the biggest problems is funding. There's no clear model to fund technology in the access to justice space. A lot of funders or philanthropists or groups will like to fund kind of single point in time projects. You know, I'll give you the initial money to build it out. But then you run into the issue where maintenance kind of needs to be consistently done. The law changes, bugs are found, you might need to pivot. And it's difficult to be able to get the funding to do that in the time required to kind of make that pivot or make those adjustments. Usually funding, applying for grants has a very long term window, right? You might have to apply a year in advance in order to get something. And as we all know, in technology, you sometimes need to move really fast. Otherwise, you miss the window of opportunity. Did you also have to deal with the client base and their ability to understand, access technology? Not everybody's got a smartphone, although these days most people do, or many people in this socioeconomic group don't have computers. How do you deal with those challenges? Yeah. So kind of one thing I realized is when I built MD Expungement, I initially built it for a kind of pro se client user. And I quickly found out the biggest user of the website by far were attorneys who were using it to help automate their own expungement process. And so you have to build very different apps depending on who your user is. If it's an attorney, they understand the law. They don't necessarily need to see all the warnings and stuff that pops up. But you're right. If it's a client or a pro se user who's not an attorney, you have to be able to convey all the possible risks involved. And you may have to sometimes kind of take a parental approach and say, you're trying to expunge this record, but it's just not eligible. And we're not going to let you print the petition because it's just going to get rejected. And, you know, there's, of course, a wide range of people out there with tech skills. And so it's very crucial to make sure you do lots of user testing and make sure that it's usable by every kind of demographic. Where do you see the line in terms of technology moving into some of the ethical lines in terms of use of technology, unauthorized practice of law, et cetera? They shift. Yeah. So the unauthorized practice of law is a really tricky one to get around because it's, it's kind of vague. 
UPL laws weren't written for technology. And so where exactly an automated program crosses the line of practicing law is kind of a gray area. And to date, there haven't been too many objections, but I feel like it's stifling some people who don't want to take the risk, right? You, you work really hard to get this law degree. You don't want to risk it on an app unless you're sure. And so I would love to see some clarity come out as to where exactly the line is and put some restrictions around, you know, the legal technology into what it has to tell users or something like that, but have a clearly drawn line. There are other issues when it comes to automated services, especially without any lawyer intervention, right? Legal tech aimed directly at pro se users is what is the acceptable failure rate that we're willing to accept if it means helping thousands more people. And expungement's a great issue where the program itself is very good. And let's say it has a 1% failure rate. And so if we help 100,000 people, 1,000 people will get a faulty expungement petition. It'll get rejected by the court. Now, is that an acceptable level? If we had nothing but attorneys, presumably that rate would be you know, maybe 0.01%. But we might only be able to help a thousand people. And so what is the trade-off there? What's the level of risk? And this is something that is impacting things like self-driving cars as well. So it's a, an issue that's impacting every area of technology, not just the law. They need your randomized studies or randomized tests. That's right. Because you build, you build an assumption in there that the human touch would have a lower error rate. I'm not so sure that's necessarily the case. I agree. There have been some studies that have tested attorney intervention versus non-attorney or just, you know, things like having an informational booklet or instead of full rep, you have limited or brief advice. And depending on the area, the full representation isn't always more effective, which kind of does go against what a lot of people think of having an attorney is always the gold standard, always the best. uh, And we should always do it. I'm intrigued by that. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about that. Under what circumstances are you finding that full representation is not as effective as limited representation? Yeah, so there were two studies done by the lab, or it actually preceded the lab, but they were done in two contexts. One was unemployment appeals, where a law school clinic would provide representation to people. And then because the clinic could only accept so many clients, we would track the clients who didn't get representation. And ultimately, the study showed that the outcomes of the appeals were about the same. The biggest difference was it took, on average, a few weeks longer for the people represented by the clinics to get that outcome. And so you got the same outcome, you just had to wait longer for it. And it goes against that kind of entrenched belief that attorneys always get better outcomes, but that might not be true. Now, this might just be this particular area of law, that these are appeals of unemployment benefits. So some large segment of people with kind of winnable cases maybe have already been screened out by the, have already gotten their unemployment benefits accepted. And so it might just be this area of law, but it goes to show that you shouldn't take that as a kind of a default example. So what did you learn during your journey in Maryland with these apps that you are now applying in your current work with A to J Lab? Yeah. One is that I think kind of the number of technologies that can be built can impact almost every area of the legal process for nonprofit legal aid groups. And my whole experience is with nonprofit legal aid groups. Everything from helping the paralegals do intake to answering pro bono questions to helping pro bono attorneys, even speeding up kind of various internal aspects of the legal service provider actions can all be helped with technology. And What I'm trying to do at the lab is find more 
tech focused interventions in order to prove that they really do have this kind of impact and show that technology can be used to help automate some of these things. And, and we're currently in the process of, of trying that. You wrote an article for the ABA for Law Schools publication where you gave some tips to law students. And I've got a couple questions on a few of them. The first one was learn to code. And I know you teach a class, or at least at one point we're teaching a class on how to code for law students. Why do you think lawyers or law students ought to learn to code? What's in it for them? Yeah, so I've taught coding for lawyers now as an adjunct for, uh, I think, four semesters. And the goal is, I get to ask this all the time, the goal is not to create kind of full stack software developers, people who go out and they make a career out of building technology. Maybe that'll happen, but that's not the goal for the class. The goal is to increase your confidence, the law student's confidence in being able to work with technology. And then the second goal is to allow them to better see the potentials for automation. So with the confidence, you don't want when you kind of sign on a client, maybe you go work for Google or you work for a law firm that has Google as a client. You don't want to go into a meeting with the client where they say, we need your help writing some kind of paperwork for an API or we're getting sued because of something like that. And you don't want your first question to be, what is an API? That's not the time to learn about it, right? Right. Nobody's going to feel confident in that lawyer's ability to handle your case. And what this allows is for you to get all those questions we teach about APIs and all of that during the class. So you have more confidence to talk to the client, understand the issues of potential legal pitfalls. And my belief is that the only way to truly understand some of these concepts like APIs or web scrapings is to actually try to build an API or connect to an API yourself. You can read about it all you want, but until you actually try to do it yourself, you have a a kind of a newfound appreciation for what goes into it, how bugs are put into code, what the difficulty can be. You know, it's interesting you you describe it that way. I work with the firm's tech R&D function. There's maybe 18 folks, developers, et cetera, in there. And there's a difference in terms of working with people who are facile with software and technology, not that they come in and be developers, but you can have a more enriched conversation with people about what the capabilities of technology are. They just don't come in and say, make this magic box print money. Right. (laughs) That's exactly right. And the second goal is to be able to kind of spot those potentials for automation. And that coincides with being able to talk with developers and IT people on a more realistic level. And so one thing I always try to get into the law students is if you join a law firm and you find yourself in an area where you're doing something very repetitive that could be replaced by an algorithm, you need to make sure that you're not dedicating too much time to that area, right? You need to pivot into a new area. You don't want to find yourself having dedicated 10 years of your career to something that's now run by TurboTax. Or vice versa, if you see an area that can be automated, you can now take that idea and say, look, you know, IT development team, or can I have some money to go hire a developer to try to build out that proof of concept that normally you wouldn't have seen? And things like web scraping can be very difficult to wrap your head around as to what's possible until you actually build a web scraper. This leads me to ask about one of the other points you made, which is avoid the dinosaurs, which I thought was a great turn of the phrase. But the question really is for those people who do learn coding and do learn facility, and you you talked about, I want to get money for a developer. That's sometimes an organizational challenge for a young lawyer. Is that what you meant by avoid the dinosaurs, just avoid those situations? Or do you have thoughts about how to articulate and drive that change behavior that's necessary for that? So that's exactly what I meant, is to avoid the people who just 
don't see technology as the future. So let's say you join a law firm and on day one, you realize that their case management system is all paper-based. And the reason it's paper-based is because the head person just doesn't like the idea of the cloud. That's something you want to avoid. You know, the, the odds that you're going to be able to change that person's mind, especially if the power dynamics are, you know, you're the new person and they've been the senior partner for 40 years, you're unlikely to change that person's mind. And so in that situation, you want to pivot and you want to join a group that is tech for, that is willing to take a chance on new tech ideas and automation. And you don't want to have to work for somebody who's constantly fighting against any kind of change when it comes to tech. Unless it's a very specific circumstance, I'm almost against trying too hard to change things internally. People are usually set in their ways, you know, maybe give it a, a good faith effort. But if you don't see any progress pretty quickly on them coming around to technology as a future, I would recommend jumping ship and going to a group that does see technology as something to be utilized, not feared. What do you see next in the application of technology in the ADJ space? I know you're experimenting perhaps with a little virtual reality or perhaps augmented reality. I don't quite know what it is. Is that is that what's next or more automation or what do you see as next? Yeah, it, it depends on on your time frame of next. I don't know if we'll be having court trials in, in virtual reality anytime soon, but what I wanted to, uh, one of the VR studies that we had going, unfortunately, we, we had to cancel it. It wasn't able to, to make it to the finish line was we wanted to test the impact of training pro bono attorneys in virtual reality. So one big thing we have is pro bono attorneys are great at their area of law, but maybe they're kind of a, a contracts attorney and they've never been in a courtroom and they're kind of very fearful of that. So how do you get them over that fear? And one study we looked at was showing half of the pro bono attorneys at this group trained a video where we walked them through the courthouse. We showed them who to give files to. Here's what the judge is going to say. Here's how you talk to your client in the hallway beforehand. And the hope was, how does that compare to showing the same attorney or the other half of the attorneys a flat kind of version of that video on a TV screen? Did the virtual reality actually have an impact when it comes to training? Unfortunately, we ran into some logistics issues and it wasn't able to get off the ground. But the law is usually always three steps behind when it comes to technology. We implemented cloud-based case management systems years after everybody else moved to the cloud. And so my hope with some of this kind of more forward-thinking tech is to get lawyers thinking about it now so we're not always playing catch-up. And so that's kind of my goal with some of this, this VR stuff. That's interesting because it's using technology to sort of deal with the human dimension to alleviate anxiety, for example, creating familiarity. I hadn't thought about the use of technology in that sense. Yeah, there's a, I think it's out of Oklahoma where they were using virtual reality to help students get over stage fright. And so they would load up a virtual crowd and you give your opening mock trial arguments to this crowd in an attempt to get over some of those early jitters, which I thought was a fantastic example of nice, low-hanging fruit that can actually have an impact. Uh, hopefully the crowd cheered if you made a good point. Because <laughs> you could go, yeah, right. You don't want to have it coded that they boo you off the stage. That just might make things worse. <laughs> well, you do have to have the human touch in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm going back now to sort of the ethical points in dealing with technology. Are you seeing any movement being made out there in the various states to try to deal with some of these gray areas you're talking about, the sandbox in Utah, for example, or California or Arizona? Yeah, I would like to see more movement. I'm glad that some courts have created these sandboxes where it's kind of a, you know, we're willing to let things slide in a way that we wouldn't normally have as long as we can monitor it and make sure that nothing inappropriate is happening. And I think that's a fantastic way to make sure that 
technology companies can take the risk to build the software and that they don't fear immediately getting shut down. I would like to see more discussions around UPL laws, right, unauthorized practice of law. I think those laws need to change. I also think discussions around advertising need to change. A lot of tech can be used to help advertise lawyer services to clients, but the advertising laws were not designed for the age of putting an ad on Google or an ad on Facebook. And of course, you know, there's rules between soliciting clients directly who have a known legal need versus broad, uh, you know, putting a billboard up on the side of a highway. And those were the only two options back in the day. And now, of course, we can narrow it down much more specifically where we target a group of 50 people who we all knew went to the hospital recently. And so we can target them with tort referrals or injury accident kind of cases. Where does that fall in the line? Is that closer to the billboard or closer to the individualized letter sending? And there's no clear line. And so I think a lot of people sometimes follow the Uber method where we just do it and hope we don't get in trouble. And other people usually kind of nonprofit groups who tend to be a little bit more cautious, hold back and say, well, let's wait for an opinion to come out. Let's ask lots of professionals what they think their opinion is on this. And they're less likely to take a risk. And so unfortunately, a lot of these gray areas impact access to justice negatively because they don't want to take the risk in the gray area, whereas a for-profit attorney might be willing to take that chance and go ahead and you know advertise to clients in a way that's in a gray area or something like that. You mentioned uh, sort of advertising, targeting advertising for people who are in the hospital. Does that raise any data privacy issues for you? Where do you draw those lines? That gets a lot tougher. You know, where is the data coming from, right? It's usually one group you were able to geofence around certain areas and then advertise to people whose cell phones came in that geofence. So that seems like it could be potentially very invasive. The thing I would say is lots of people advertise using that way. And so I wouldn't want to have a carve out that says only lawyers can't advertise to, you know, data retrieved from geolocation from cell phones or something like that. But it is a a conversation that I think is being had at kind of a top level of where do we draw the line about what kind of data can be collected and, and who it can be used for. I will say that in the access to justice space, you know, we we try to use as much data as possible because our hope is always to help out indigent clients. And so there's really no ethical dilemma. If the data is available and we can use it to help somebody, we grab that data and we use it. So there's very few instances where we say, well, that data is just too sensitive. Right. I know your work with the A to J lab is the technology supporting the studies and the analysis you're doing. But do you ever sort of see the results of the studies and say, you know, I could build an app to solve that problem. Do you ever want to go back to your app building days or maybe you're still in your app building days? So, yeah. So luckily I'm still in my app building days because there's just so many things required to get some of these studies going that there's lots of apps that usually come out of it. Now they're all usually geared towards data collection and data randomization. There are times where I've come across some module we built and I said, well, you know, we tweak this module just a little bit there might be a kind of a market for it outside of just randomized controlled trials. And I, I would love to one day create a legal tech startup when the right idea came along. I, you know, I love what I do at the Access to Justice Lab, so I don't have any intention of doing it anytime soon. But there is always kind of that legal tech startup itch that a lot of people have. It does seem to affect a lot of people, no question about it. Well, Matthew, we're out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for spending time with us today. And Hopefully, uh, your work with the A to J Lab will continue and you'll find a way to scratch that legal startup itch at some point. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.